Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. From the outside, this was, you know, an all-American family. Everybody wanted to know, well, did you see something? What, what, what might have been a clue that this would happen? And never could at that point come up with anything and still don't, don't know what would bring those events to transpire. There's a lot of things if you start to really pull the string that start to unravel the facade that they had everything going right for them. It's a Tuesday morning, April 10th, 2001, when a quiet neighborhood in Scottsdale, Arizona, is rocked by an explosion. So this started pretty early in the morning as people are, you know, getting up, getting ready to get out the door around 8, 8.30. This is Erica Stapleton, a reporter with local news station KPNX in Phoenix. It's quiet neighborhood in Scottsdale when all of a sudden there is this huge explosion and looking back through some of our file video you could hear interviews with neighbors saying like it rattled our house thought it was an earthquake and then you look outside and you see just a ball of fire completely engulfing the sky. It was a tremendous explosion just shook the whole house. But those neighbors soon realize it's definitely not an earthquake. It's a home that exploded in the middle of their neighborhood. And if you look at some aerial visuals you can see that this is big. This is a huge thing. This is absolutely not normal. This isn't just, you know, a fire started in the kitchen and, continue, you know, grew over time. This was all of a sudden the house was engulfed in flames. There was a huge boom to go along with it, and neighbors immediately ran outside. 911 was immediately called, and the fire department got there as soon as they could. But at that point, it was, there wasn't much to save. It was already too late. Firefighters take over from neighbors who'd been attempting to tame the flames with garden hoses. But by this point, the house itself is well beyond saving. So immediately this draws a ton of attention, especially because this is a home where a family lives. So neighbors are, of course, concerned for the folks inside, but also just what is happening? Is this going to spread? Is there still a threat out there? It was just completely astounding and rattled the entire neighborhood. The smoke was so thick that it could be seen from blocks, even miles away. Not only could you see it, you know, directly in this neighborhood, you could see the plume of smoke and the flames leaping in the sky, you know, from blocks away. So we actually spoke with the pastor who happened to be the family's pastor, Greg Cantelmo, and he says he remembers that day, you know, like it was yesterday, even though it was 20 years ago, because he was at their church, which at the time was Scottsdale Baptist Church. It's, it's crazy to think it's been... 20 years, and at the same time, it feels like it was yesterday. So I don't think about it all the time, but when it comes up, uh, the images are very vivid and the memories come back pretty strong. Pastor Greg Contelmo 
was just beginning his day when the explosion occurred. I had arrived at church, and a few blocks away, I saw a plume of smoke and helicopters. The smoke is coming from a neighborhood where one of the families who attends his church is living. The Fishers, a family he's gotten to know well through church activities and events. Robert, Mary, and their two kids, Brittany and Bobby. And by the time he got to the scene, because just general curiosity, knowing this is something happening only a few blocks over in his neighborhood, he realized that it was the Fisher family, so he knew them from church. Didn't know anything, but got a call, went over to the neighborhood, saw the house on fire. Um, Mary's father was there, and so we started talking. We didn't know what happened at that time, and we just knew that something bad happened. I think it was Mary's car that was in the carport. Um, but we didn't know if anybody was in the house or not. That's the question on everyone's minds as firefighters make their way into the Fisher's still burning home. They find a lot of destruction and they find the bodies of two children and one adult that are later identified to be Mary Fisher and her two children, Bobby, he's 10 years old, and Brittany, 12 years old. The person that is not there or was not accounted for in the house is their husband and father, Robert Fisher. Three bodies, but 39-year-old Robert Fisher is nowhere to be found. At this time, investigators don't know if he's at work, if he has any idea that this explosion even happened or if he knows what happened to his family. So they're immediately trying to get a hold of him because they do not discover his body in the house. But over time, as investigators continue to search the scene, go through every piece of literally ash, you could see video um, in our archives of investigators um, at this point, ATF, so federal investigators, had joined in to help Scottsdale Police and Scottsdale Fire. Um, they're sifting through almost like a sand shaker, you would think. So they're sifting through every single piece of ash, getting as much evidence as they possibly can because, again, this is something that doesn't just happen. Um, and they eventually realize that all of the people inside, the mother and the two kids, their throats are slashed, and Mary Fisher is actually shot in the back of the head. So investigators believe that they were killed prior to this explosion, which instantly sets up another red flag and all the more urgency to find Robert Fisher to try and piece together why something so horrific happened to this family. As investigators are trying to get a hold of Robert Fisher, they learn more about the cause of the explosion. So they brought in federal investigators who are, you know, trained to work with explosives and to try and figure out, you know, what could have led to something like this. And it was ultimately determined that this house was rigged to explode. It didn't just, there wasn't a faulty pipe. There wasn't, you know, anything natural you know, a natural gas line or something like that. This was intentionally set to explode. And what they realized is that there was, I believe, a candle or a flame of some sort, some ignition source was set inside the home, and then there was um, gas turned on. So gas was leaking into the house until ultimately it reached that pressure point on that morning of April 10th, and that's when the house just exploded. So it did take some time. It's not exactly clear when it was set, but investigators believe that the house was set to explode after the family's deaths inside. Meanwhile, investigators are still looking for Robert to try to figure out what he might have seen, what he might know. So he was not responding to anything. Um, 
as far as investigators could tell, that morning they thought, oh, maybe he went to work. He worked at a local hospital. He was um, a surgical tech at the time. So they thought maybe, you know, especially hospital workers sometimes have odd shifts. Um, they thought maybe he's been at work. Maybe he has no idea. So they tried to reach him at work. He was at the local Mayo Clinic and or should have been, but they realized that he did not show up for work that day. So that, again, is a red flag because they're trying to get some information from him or at least trying to alert him that something absolutely horrific has happened to his family. And it turns out that he doesn't show up for work. He's, you know, not responsive on his cell phone. No one is able to get a hold of him. Family members, including Mary's father, go on TV to beg Robert to come home, to explain where he's been. We love you. (laughs) Wherever you are, Robert, please. We under, we love you. Just just come home, please, Robert. But Robert doesn't show. And investigators begin to look at him as a suspect, as their only suspect. So within a day or two, investigators are again starting to piece this together, especially because he has a background as a firefighter. So investigators are thinking maybe, you know, he would have the knowledge or the wherewithal to try and pull something off like this, especially when there is an explosion that causes the house to instantly burst into flames. So pretty soon, within a day or two after that, um, he's named as a suspect in the murders of his wife and two children. And that's, as you can imagine, just a huge blow to this community. We've looked back on interviews with Mary's father, Bill Cooper, who is absolutely devastated, very religious family. Again, they were involved in Scottsdale Baptist Church at the time, and that's how the pastor knew them. That's how a lot of people knew them. So to hear that a husband is now a murder suspect in his family's murder and the suspect in rigging their home to explode after potentially murdering his family is just absolutely blasphemous and not something a lot of people can easily comprehend. For Pastor Greg Contelmo, it's all hard to believe. This was a family that he knew. They were a part of the church community. They were his friends. Mary was very involved in the church. She served with the children's ministry. Uh, her children uh, were friends with my children. And so, uh, and Robert himself was was in a men's group that I held every Tuesday night. So I saw him every week. And uh, trying to figure it all out, it just, it really didn't make sense. And it still doesn't. As I mentioned, I've been watching some, a lot of our past coverage and you were in some of the interviews and when initially when the shift to, you know, the focus started shifting towards, okay, Robert, we're, you know, we think he's a person of interest, then a suspect. And your words exactly were unexpected. This was unexpected. And I was going to say how, you know, how does that sit 20 years later? Um, it, it really sits the same way. Um, I guess living a little bit longer, uh, I, I think, there's, there's, there's a sense in which uh, I've come to realize you don't really know a person totally in depth, even people you think you know. Uh, we all have our private lives, and uh, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors or what's really in the heart of man. Uh, the scriptures say that, that uh, sin is in the heart of man, and this is a manifestation of that, um, which, which we all struggle with at some point. But uh, how it got to that point and what was going on 
uh, still don't have answers to that. Still don't understand it. From the outside, this was, you know, an all-American family. The kids were in school. Brittany had just been inducted into the National Junior Honor Society, and everything seemed just fine. They were a family. They had fun. They went to church. They were involved in their neighborhood and their community. So this came as a huge shock that Robert would, A, be missing and non-responsive to an investigation like this, but then to be named as a suspect was just a huge blow. And then the mystery just thickens from there because, you know, who does this to begin with? But someone who does this allegedly to their family, that's just a whole different level. Again, Robert and Mary's two children, Brittany and Bobby, were just 12 and 10 years old. I think it's really important to remember the kids. Uh, I've thought a lot about the kids. My youngest daughter was at their house not too long before it happened um, with Brittany. And uh, uh, the kids were special. Mary, Mary was, was too. And, uh, and Robert was a, a friend, not a deep, close friend, but as his pastor and, and, uh, and, and as a friend, it was just really hard to, to understand. What strikes you most about the kids and how they should be remembered? Um, you know, they were just, they were, they were great little kids. They were fun. Uh, they had fun. Uh, as I mentioned, Mary was, she, she was very active in the church. She served in the children's ministry. She was really into kids and being a mom and, and so uh, I, I just, I don't know how you remember people uh, who've been victimized as, as they, who've, but when people see pictures of Mary and the kids, just, just remember or know um, they were full of life and, and full of, of uh, childish happiness in, in the best of ways as I think about the kids. Soon after the explosion, the Scottsdale community came together to remember this mother and her two kids. These were kids that were, you know, known to their peers and known to their classmates and known to their neighbors. And then Mary, their mother, was so involved in her church. She had a lot of friends within the community. So almost instantly, as you see this horrific scene with ash and the charred remains of their family's home, you see balloons and flowers and cards and pictures and little mementos and just a ton of grieving people standing outside this horrible mess that investigators are still trying to sift through and piece together. And, you know, there are a lot of tears. There's a lot of hugging. There's family members from Mary's family who are on the scene, too. And it's just absolutely devastating, you know, to see such a scene unfold. So at this time, I think community, was, community support was so, you know, important for the living family members to see that these people were so loved, and there was so much more that they could have, you know, continued on to do. So as big as the outpouring of support was, it was also a little chilling because this is something that should not have happened. And in speaking with the pastor, Greg Cantelmo, now 20 years later, he says, looking back, he doesn't think he's ever seen that high of an attendance for a service than he did the Fisher family back in 2001. So within a week um, of their deaths, there was a huge service at their church, and it looked like a concert. I think that was one of the largest 
responses or groups of people that came together for memorial service. Um, and so I think in the midst of the hurt that everybody was experiencing, they found comfort and strength by being together and with each other and remembering uh, and celebrating the life of, of, uh, of Mary and the kids. But as community members come together to remember Mary, Brittany, and Bobby, many are no doubt also thinking back on their interactions with Robert Fisher, questioning how well they really knew him. Likewise, investigators are trying to learn more about Robert as well, searching for any clues about what could have led up to something like this. As investigators start to you know, really see beneath the surface, they realize that there might have been some tension in the marriage between Mary and Robert Fisher. And the night leading up to the explosion, one neighbor had reportedly told police that he heard some yelling coming from the Fisher household. And there was also some reports that maybe Robert, who suffered an injury from his firefighting days back in California, had gone to a masseuse and maybe there was an affair there. So there's a lot of things, if you start to really pull the string, that start to unravel the facade that they had everything going right for them as a family. So these are some of the things that are, you know, investigators are learning as they start to search for him. They're saying, okay, maybe he wasn't, you know, this loving husband that people knew him as or thought he was. Or maybe there's more than meets the eye to what could have been going on here. And over time, investigators eventually learn that Robert was really, you know, torn up when his own parents split. So if the family was maybe, or at least if he and Mary were heading toward divorce, investigators say they, you know, had heard from others and had learned that a divorce was something he did not want to put his family through. So to this day, that is one of the things that maybe could have driven such a violent act, or at least investigators believe that. If anyone could speak to the Fishers' relationship outside of Robert and Mary themselves, it's probably Pastor Greg Contelmo. He'd been counseling the couple through some of their marital issues, although he says they weren't really anything out of the ordinary. I'd been in counseling with him and Mary, and, and they, were, they were taking some positive steps forward in the midst of working through issues. But the issues weren't anything radically different than what most people go through at some point in their experience. So I, I know initially 20 years ago, everybody wanted to know, well, did you see something? What, what, what might have been a clue that this would happen? And never could at that point come up with anything and still don't, don't know what would bring those events to transpire. Days go by, and although there's still no sign of Robert Fisher, Investigators are still on the hunt. So investigators are looking through his last steps before this explosion, and they come to learn that the last time he is seen on camera is an ATM near his family's home in Scottsdale on April 9th. At that time, they see him in the ATM video, and you can see the surveillance video. He's almost looking behind his shoulder. He takes out $280, which might seem like a really odd amount, but back then, you have to remember that there are ATM limits and, you know, it's not something investigators were too hung up on. But they say, hey, you know what? We know he was in Scottsdale on the night before the home exploded. And in the background of that surveillance footage, you can see the 4Runner. That's Mary's vehicle, that Toyota 4Runner, 
that is also missing the morning of the explosion. So not only do they not find Robert amongst the mess and the chaos and the ashes, but Mary's Toyota 4Runner is also not there. So they're thinking, putting two, two and two together and saying, he's probably with this vehicle. We need to be on the lookout for not just him, but also that vehicle too. So that ATM footage was almost one of the last clues that they were able to you know, piece together to try and figure out what direction he might be headed in and where he actually was when something, you know, when his family might have been killed. Investigators soon looked to areas where Robert had been known to spend time in the past. And here's the thing about Robert Fisher. If you knew him back then, you knew that he was an avid outdoorsman. He loved to camp and would often go up to northern Arizona to do that. So police are learning this intel and they're saying, okay, we have a guy here who likes to camp, he's missing, and took this car with him, we might need to start searching areas he is known for um, or is known to have been in the past. So the search doesn't just stay in Scottsdale when they realize, okay, he isn't at the scene now. We're not sure if he was at the scene back then. Um, we do know he was only blocks away from his uh, home the night before the explosion, but as for what happened after, in those hours leading up to the explosion, they believe he probably took off. And in those hours, they're thinking, where could he have gone? There's, you know, Arizona's pretty vast, and he could have gone anywhere. So to narrow it down, they're talking with people that knew him, and they're realizing, okay, he's camped up in the Payson area before specifically young Arizona, the Tonto National Forest. It's pretty remote. We know he's been up there. It's up there near young Arizona, where 10 days after the explosion, on April 20th, investigators get another clue, one that still might be their best clue to date. Mary's Toyota 4Runner is spotted in the Tonto National Forest in young Arizona. So that's the northeastern part of Arizona. It's very remote. The roads nearby are dirt roads, essentially. There's not a lot of homes. Um, the nearest, you know, town, I would say, is probably Payson that has the, you know, most population. So this is a super remote area. And if you look at aerial shots, um, from when they found the car, you can see it's just trees everywhere. You almost have to crane your neck and eyes to see exactly where that vehicle was. So they realize it's his vehicle, um, or at least the vehicle they're searching for. And when investigators, you know, hightail it up there and get into that, you know, really heavy forest area to get to the car, they realize that the family's dog, Blue, is actually outside the vehicle too. So they say, okay, we have Mary's car, this is the family's dog, but again, Robert is nowhere to be found. Next week on True Crime Chronicles, part two of The Hunt for Robert Fisher. Fisher is an outdoorsman and skilled in hunting and fishing. He is described as controlling, and if in a relationship, will likely be the one making all the decisions. Fisher could easily be surviving in the wild or be your next door neighbor. He is of average appearance, so we ask the public to focus on the traits and behaviors mentioned to help in locating him. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? 
Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig. Reed, uh, I'm sure Spencer and I both have many questions about this case. Stop me if I'm asking questions that you'll cover in part two next week. Uh, Let me ask, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how the home was rigged to explode? Did investigators hone in on that? Yeah, as Erica mentioned, it was really clear from the start that this wasn't a house fire, that this was intentionally rigged to explode. And and the way that it happened was that a gas line had been disconnected from the home's furnace in the basement. There was accelerant spread throughout the home and on the bodies. And then upstairs, there was a candle lit. So essentially, when the gas spread far enough throughout the home and hit that candle, the whole place would blow. So that's what resulted in this, this big explosion and this huge boom throughout Scottsdale. So, Reed, I, these murders were absolutely horrific. I, I, I really can't get over the slashing of the children's throats. It just, that is just unbelievable to me. Um, I mean, the whole thing is unbelievable to me, but that in particular really sticks out in my mind for this part one. Um, so he, he murders them and then he sets the house to explode. Do investigators know what was the motive behind that? What was he trying to accomplish by, you know, blowing the home up? To touch on the first part of that, you're, Absolutely right, Spencer. The allegations here are really so brutal and so horrific, and they leave us with the unanswerable question of of what could cause someone to enact that level of violence on their own family members, as investigators believe Fisher did. Uh, But to get at the second part of your question, why then rig the house to explode after Mary and the kids were already dead, investigators seem to think at least that the goal there was to cover up the crime that maybe there was a belief that the fire would obscure Mary, Bobby, and Brittany's actual cause of death, or if not, then at least to delay that discovery and give Fisher more time to get away, which is, of course, what happened. There's at least a period of time on the day of the explosion where investigators are looking for a fourth body inside, not really knowing what happened, not knowing if Robert was home or what exactly caused the explosion. And meanwhile, Robert Fisher is putting more distance between investigators and himself. Reed, I, I know you talk about the ATM footage. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that timeline of footage from the night before and then possibly after the murders, right? The interesting thing there, Will, and this gets back to how the home was actually rigged to explode, is that investigators believe it would have taken hours for the gas coming out of that line in the basement to travel all the way up to the lit candle and actually ignite. So this ATM footage is from the night prior to the explosion But because of how long it would take for the gas to reach that lit candle, investigators think it's possible and maybe even likely that this footage was captured after Mary, Brittany, and Bobby were killed and after that candle was lit. And if that's the case, then Robert Fisher had about a 10-hour window before the home exploded to start to get away, not to mention the, the head start that he had on investigators besides that. All right, so stay tuned. Next week, we'll be back with part two of this case and Reed Redman uh, telling us about what happens. Be sure to check out our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault, and also Reed and I host a daily show Monday through Friday, The Daily Crime. Subscribe and listen wherever you listen to podcasts. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig. We'll be back next week with part two.